Welcome everybody to our Black Friday pre-Thanksgiving Christmas holiday shopping episode extravaganza with a really long title that I obviously didn't work out in advance. Nailed it. Basically, we decided that we would put this together to give folks an idea if you have non-gamers or maybe beginning gamers in your life that you're trying to get more into the hobby. We want to talk about some of the different genres of games that we've talked about on the show and maybe some of the ones that we haven't yet and say if you're interested in this kind of game and you want to get more folks into it, here are maybe some good starting points for those new players to try and get engaged. We're throwing out some ideas for you that you might find useful if you're wanting to get games for people this season, and those people don't know what they want. We know what they want. Obviously. We're podcasters. That makes us experts. We're just going to go through some of the episodes we've recorded so far in order and talk about what we think are some good choices to get folks into that type of games. And we started way back in episode one talking about deck building games. I would put my recommended deck building game introduction as Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. I mean, this game has a couple of things going for it. It, first of all, uses a legacy style introduction of rules. The first game that you play is going to be a bare bones. This is how you purchase things. This is how you fight things. Very minimalistic, almost kind of boring uh, (laughs) introduction to the game. And almost like two pages of rules. I mean, there's not much more there. Right. Like you open up the box, you pull out the cards, you give out characters and bam, you're ready to go. But then as you play each subsequent game, it introduces new mechanics and builds upon the things that you played in the last game. And of course, with the Harry Potter theme, it appeals to a wide audience. I mean, it's hard to think about this, guys, but Harry Potter is almost, what, like 20 years old now? Don't say it. (laughs) Uh, You said it. You said the thing you're not supposed to say. Good job, Mike. But yeah, it is the kind of game that I think even if you get people who aren't especially into board games, if you have folks who are on the nerdy, geeky edge of culture, and even people who don't classify themselves that way, everybody knows Harry Potter. I haven't played this one myself, but from everything I've heard about it, that does seem like just the kind of thing we're talking about here. Yeah, especially for people that have never played any sort of more what we consider a more advanced board game. It's not as intimidating because you've got this, you know, friendly theme that everyone's familiar with. I know who these characters are. I know who the good guys are. I know who the bad guys are. And teaching the rules as you go along, you're like, oh, okay, well, I already know how to play, and this is just one extra thing this time. Okay, well, I can that's do easy. that. I can do that. And then by the time they get to year seven, they're like, oh, we added like 25 things, and I never really considered it. Well, not only that, but it also is not intimidating. So, you know, if somebody starts telling you about their D&D character, you're going to be like, what the hell is a cloak of the manta ray and why do I care that you have it? But like you tell somebody about your Patronus and they're like, I've taken that quiz too. I'm a unicorn. (laughs) Like they know what that is and they aren't going to be like, what the hell is a Patronus and why do I care? Yeah. And it's not like board games that I got into when I first started. It was like, well, this is a very dry theme of a European village in some indeterminate age. The, the plight of the subsistence farmer. <laughs> My favorite kind of game. Ooh, look at all the brown art. It's great. <laughs> I don't know. I always thought a Patrona sounded like some sort of pretentious European beer. Definitely an alcohol. I think another good game, right, if you're looking for something that it's not like, hey, I need to be walked through every single step of new rules, but you kind of want like a fully baked game that does a pretty good job of, of being very light, very fun, a fair amount of play interaction. I think Clanked is an excellent example. It's both deck building and pressure luck, and the pressure luck mechanism affects all the other players, right? So, like, as you're doing things, you're making choices that are going to affect all the other players, right? Like, hey, you're going deeper in the dungeon, you're making more noise to go even further, and then that's going to cause more cubes to be drawn. And they're all very 
very angry that's with you. That's going to cause the dragon to be more angry, and that's going to kill your friend who happened to have the most noise cubes, even, and you had just one less, but you made a ton of noise, right? It's so, like there's a lot of fun interaction there. I'm guessing at that point you're going to have to teach them, though. The rules are a little tricky. The rules are definitely more board gamey for sure, oh, yeah, totally. right? Like you, you it's definitely a game you're gonna have to teach. Harry Potter kind of like walks you through the process of teaching. For Clank, you are gonna have to sit down and figure out how to teach this to a new board gamer, right? That is kind of the nature of that game. But I think once you kind of get someone going, the pieces individually are very simple, and the the kind of combined pressure luck and deck building, I think, works really well in the deck building genre to make it more entertaining because sometimes deck builders are kind of dry. Yeah, and again, the theme here is very simple to pick up. You're basically invading a, a dragon's horde and stealing treasure. That's pretty simple to conceptualize, and like it's one of those games that leads to fun moments like Joe was talking about. With the pressure luck aspect, you can totally screw someone over <laughs> because you're very, very greedy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the best way to do it. I don't know if anybody here has played it yet. There's the new Acquisitions Incorporated themed Legacy one. So if you have people who are maybe approaching the hobby from that side of thing, you know, or they're fans of Penny Arcade or any of that stuff, that might be another approach as well. I played with the characters with the unique cards in their decks. I haven't played the actual full-blown game because it wasn't out when I was playing it. But the cards were appropriately themed for the characters. Yeah, so and I feel like fun. it's mechanically pretty similar to oh, the base yeah, game. Basically the same thing, yeah. Our second episode was on one versus many games, and this is a little bit more interesting because a lot of times if you have some new gamers coming into this, you'll have one person who knows the game a little bit better being the one, the bad guy, the DM, the overlord, whatever, and the other players teamed up against them, which is fine because there's generally more to do for the person who's playing on the one side of the equation, but you also kind of need to be aware and, and maybe pull your punches a little bit to give a good game experience as people are getting used to it because you know a lot more of the tricks and stuff than the other players do. Also, a lot of these tend to be a little bit more on the complicated side, but one good one that I think works well and also sort of avoids that experienced player problem is Betrayal at House on the Hill and also Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. The tricky part of Betrayal is that you split the books. So each of those groups gets sent off with a separate book. If a new player goes off with a rule book and has to interpret the rules on their own, mm -hmm. that's daunting. True. It will certainly require some coaching for whoever gets picked as the betrayer because there are a bunch of new rules that come into play at that phase of the game. Not in a bad way, but like there's just... It will require a little coaching there. I think the game is light enough, though. Yeah. And, like, I think you can treat it as, like, well, hey, don't worry about it. We're just playing to have fun. You can give that sense of gameplay for Betrayal. In the Legacy version, actually, everything's written much better. Yeah, the, the rules are a lot tighter More in the Legacy game. More and easier to learn. <laughs> it's not quite as random. <laughs> yeah, true. It might even be worthwhile, you know, if you have a group of folks that you're trying to get into and you're sort of the experienced gamer shepherding them in. Maybe you don't even play that first game. Maybe you sort of walk them through it and then you sort of consult with whoever winds up being the haunter if they're having any issues working it out. Yeah, and then after the first time, everyone will kind of have a pretty good idea. As long as you spend enough time explaining how the betrayer works, right, the second time you can play and everything will be, should be fine. There are a couple rules you kind of need to get, but after you get them, right, they're, they're pretty generally applicable. Yep. Like going forward. And again, theme-wise, it's pretty universal. You have a bunch of people who go into a haunted house and decide to split up and explore because that's the smart thing to do when you're in a haunted house. If you have folks who are into more of a fantasy perspective, Betrayal at Baldur's Gate is more or less the same game. It's got a few slight mechanical differences, and I think, again, is a little bit tighter on the rules than the original Betrayal. It is, but I, I think if, if you're looking at a gateway for people in general, like the D&D 
milieu might be a little off-putting or a little much. In Baldur's Gate Betrayal, the special items are like powerful magical items, whereas in normal Betrayal, the magic items are like you get bit or it's a magical mirror. Like there are things that like are in the general zeitgeist as opposed to betrayal Baldur's gate it's it's like mordenkainen's staff like well okay, <laughs> well what does that what mean, does that mean? Yeah. if i remember correctly Baldur's gate version also has unique character powers right so that that's another layer of complexity for maybe yeah. someone who's never played before yeah. so keeping it as symmetrical a player experience until the betrayal happens might be a better call in that regard sure. well but those powers are fairly light they're not huge. It is an extra step, but I feel like if you're going for it, I personally like Betrayal at Boulder's Gate better. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're assuming that you know your audience who you're buying these for, so you can probably find something that will appeal. Yeah. yeah, I'm certainly more on the base Betrayal side, I think, personally. But I don't disagree. Like, those two audiences are slightly different audiences. Mm-hmm. So. As far as the legacy game goes, like Frank said, that is tighter on the rule standpoint. It does sort of expand gradually from a very small baseline. That said, you're sort of getting people to hopefully commit to a longer series of games. So if you're not convinced they're going to like it, I would probably stick with the, the base game. Yeah, and that's tricky enough with committed gamers, uh, let this alone is true. people who, who may be just getting into the hobby. So uh, just be careful. (laughs) Yeah, I was trying to think of a game that would be really simple. And Nyctophobia fills that bill. It's one we haven't really covered before. Basically, one player sets up a maze and everyone's campers lost in the woods being chased by some kind of slasher, a vampire in the Target exclusive version, and I think a different creature in the hobby retail version. Before the maze is set up, all of the players put on blackout shades. They can't see a thing. And you have this little maze with a car and woods and their own pawns. Basically, they have to move by feel (laughs) and remember where they are on the board. You guide their hand to their pawn and they kind of can feel next to them to encounter something. They can throw rocks, in which case you tell them how far the rock goes before they hear it thud against the ground. And that can chase away the monster briefly. The monster is driven by cards, but goes toward the person who made the most noise. And uh, basically, they're trying to, well, in the vampire game, get to a pawn and get it back to the car. So they're trying to do a rescue mission in the forest. And you pretty much know how to play. Everyone gets two hit points. They can only get hit by the vampire twice. And you really know how to play at this point. Okay. My apologies for laughing, but I was just imagining being blindfolded while my dog runs havoc across my my (laughs) living room, knocking pieces for this game all over the place. I'm sure it would be (laughs) fine. Yeah, that reminded me a little bit of another one that is relatively simple. And it's probably out of print now. There's a game called City Baba where basically most of the players are sort of wandering around a dungeon. And basically the GM or the the keeper is basically showing them a picture of what the map looks like. You know, he goes two spaces forward and then turns left. So they have to sort of mentally (laughs) build a map of the thing and figure out how to get to where the treasure is. And and you give them a first-person view, yeah. Yeah. So that one's cute. Might be harder to find, though. True. So while all of these are, are great options, I think one of the best ways to introduce people is through cooperative gaming because... Especially if you've got non-gamers, like, in my experience, they tend to be very focused on, like, how do I win? Oh, I'm not winning. Okay, I give up. This game is dumb. So play a cooperative 1v minigame. And that's where Mysterium comes in. And this one's actually interesting because, A, the rules are really light. It is basically a, can you read other people? It's kind of abstract, but has a theme to it that is very light, but not so overwhelmingly thematic that it's going to intimidate anyone but also 
you're all working together to achieve a goal, which I think is super important. That was where I was going to go with that. That's actually a really good point because when when you play, you, you tend to find everyone's trying to cooperatively help each other figure out what is this clue that Ghost is trying to give me? Because like maybe it's the fact that it's blue. Maybe it's the fact that it's got a car on it. Maybe it's the fact that this guy has a tall hat. <laughs> it could be any of these things, but it fosters a lot of communication and a lot of engagement for people that maybe think that board games are dry and it, you know their previous experiences have all been limited to roll a dice and move somewhere. And certainly few know that your audience is going to need a game that is attractive. Mysterium is hella attractive. Super pretty. So gorgeous. Like all the components are gorgeous. The artwork on all the cards is just totally amazing. I've seen people walk by like at cons, people playing Mysterium and kind of stop and be like, oh, what's this? Just because like it looks so fascinating. It's just really pretty. Yeah, it has a real good table presence. Yeah. Interestingly, to make these two even easier, if you wanted to go completely out on a limb, I have the Ukrainian version. First of all, the rules are much simpler. Except for the fact that they're in Ukrainian. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you can download them. No big deal. But uh, the pieces are nicer. You get these gorgeous little crystal balls. Those and... are very cool. Yeah. Functionally, you can play the base Mysterium game and just throw away all the extra gamey true, bits yeah. they added. All they added, the extra gamey bits are all the like, hey, I think this person is right or this person is wrong. And then like having that drive how many cards you get to see at the end of the game. But like that's really the only piece they added on. You could just strip that away. Yeah, true. Not even explain that when you're teaching it and I think you'd be fine. And honestly, like the game doesn't really need that. It's just more of an extra gamey thing that was It's making it more gamey. Yeah. Yeah. Our next episode, episode three, was the Batteries Included episode. We're going to kind of skip that one because it's a lot of app-driven stuff and a lot of them are gamier games. So we don't really feel like we want to dive into that one right now. So the next episode we had was uh, Dice Games, and uh, we've got a couple thoughts here. I think the obvious one that jumped to everybody's mind first is Sagrada. It's a great little dice drafting game. The theme is more of a traditional European game. Oh, you're crafting stained glass windows in a cathedral, which is not the sort of storyline that will immediately grab players. I think that theming, though, is the right amount of inoffensive to make it a good introduction game. You're not wrong. Sure. Okay, I'll buy that. But it's very pretty on the table. It's simple to put together. There's very little prep. You just kind of plug in and go. You learn as you're playing. And then once you've played it once, you're good to go. Yeah, much like Mysterium, the board presence is really, really good. So, like, I've seen it just draw people. Whenever you're playing it, anyone who's never seen it before, they're like, what is this game? What are you doing? You're like, I'm making stained glass windows. They're like, what? Uh, All right. Well, that sounds interesting, I guess. (laughs) No, seriously, it's fun. I think that Sagrada is simple enough that it makes for, I'm going to open up this board game. We're going to go over about 10 minutes rules, and then if we're going to start yeah. playing. Make sure you don't let them pick any of the hard, hard windows. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. Some people are like, oh, the, I, yeah, I can do this. No, no, you can't. No, you cannot. <laughs> you cannot. I think my choice was Las Vegas, which came out. Robinsberger just released a Las Vegas Royale edition. This is a classic Reiner Knizia game. He's probably the best pure dice game designer around. I mean, he did a book called Dice Games. I'm not going to argue with that. (laughs) In Vegas, you you just kind of roll dice and all the dice that match one color, you have to put on a space. At the end of the round, whoever has the highest total in one of those gets the biggest card, second highest, the other card, and then do that for several rounds. It's, It's really easy. You can explain it in no time. And it's a good, good game. I don't know that I've ever actually seen that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Okay. I think, I'm looking right now, but I think they actually created an app for it. No, we skipped that episode, Mike. For any any fans you might have of, like, Godzilla movies or, you know, big monsters beating the crap out of each other, King of Tokyo has always been one I'll introduce to people who haven't played games before. I mean, it's functionally Yahtzee, but with violence. 
So it's <laughs> it's a pretty easy sell to people, and you see the big cartoony little stand-up cardboard characters. Again, board presence is usually pretty good. People will be like, oh, what, what, are, what are you playing? And rolling big chunky dice on the table always gets people's attention. But I've had a lot of good, good luck introducing people that I don't have a lot of experience with board games. The rules are dead simple, especially if you play without any of the extra powers or the, you know, the New York version or any of the other crazy stuff they've added since. I think they're making a new dark version, which has got some have, extra that, mechanic yeah. to it. But the base version, like, I've had really good success introducing that to people. And it's a really fast game. And it's immediately obvious, you know, when you sit down what you want to do. I am a big stompy monster. <laughs> I want to beat up other big stompy monsters. Go. Yeah, and there's even that press your luck aspect where it's like, well, I'm down to like three health, but I'm only a couple points away from winning. And if I do enough damage, I can kill two players that are outside the city. So what do I want to do? And there's lots of cheering and groaning moments so i don't know it's a it's a good one that I'll, I'll bring out to people that have never really played much of anything else i will say i think this is one of the perfect games for introducing kids to gaming sure because yeah. like it i think just hits all the right buttons for kids that like wrecking stuff yeah they're definitely the most bloodthirsty players i've seen <laughs> oh, yeah. wow okay i wouldn't have done that but you just killed me so i guess i can't complain about that slightly off topic i was at a malfo tournament for part of yesterday there's a good intro My game <laughs> Not even a little bit. But my second round was against a seven-year-old. And that kid knew the rules better than I did. He didn't <laughs> oh. didn't really have a grasp of tactics yet. I beat him by one point. How many times did he correct you Shut in the rules? Shut up. <laughs> You're a monster, Brian. You have dashed that kid's hopes and dreams upon the rocks. No, 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 man. He was all over. He got to, you know, have a zombie monster vomit all over my guys. He was super happy. Moving on to episode five, which is our episode about cooperative games. And as uh, Mike referenced before, co-op games were a really good way to get new gamers into it because they don't have to worry. They don't have to stress about winning. Everybody's on the same side. You're explaining rules and ideas to each other. That said, a lot of our favorite cooperative games are on the heavier, more complicated side. But if you're looking for a great introductory co-op game that is also really well-priced for the components you get and pretty much will fit in the stocking, is Forbidden Island. There's a whole series of the Forbidden Games. There's Forbidden Island, Forbidden Desert. There's a whole series of them. But if you're bringing people in for the first time, I would definitely start with Forbidden Island. It's in a beautiful little tin box with, with nice components for like 20 bucks, I think. Yeah. It's just a great way of getting everybody working together. You try and find the stuff on the island, get the right cars, the right people as the island's flooding under you. It plays relatively quickly. It's not complicated to learn. Everybody has their unique special powers. You can ramp up the difficulty as people get used to it. And then if people are into it, then maybe you move on to Forbidden Desert, which has a little bit more complexity and, and start branching out from there. But I think you cannot go wrong with that one as a starter. Really, just as a series, I think that makes a good stepping stone of complexity that by the time you're done, like they're going to be looking for more. Yep. Yeah. Then they're ready to tackle Eldritch Horror. Right. <laughs> Forbidden series, Eldritch Horror, done. Yep, yep. Woo. Straight line. A little bit steep, but it's okay. <laughs> I think a good game for this kind of category is Hanabi. So as we talked before, right, like board presence is really important for games that you're trying to buy for people to get them into board games. So Hanabi is extremely pretty. All the cards are very beautiful. The mechanism of the thing that you're doing, if you see a group of players all holding their cards away from them at the table and like showing them to their their allies is very interesting looking. There's a lot of weird stuff going on when you start. The game is extremely light, right? It's, hey, play fireworks in order in piles, and that's it. I've explained 90% of the game there. Right. 
Um, so the game is extremely straightforward. There's a lot of nuance there, so your your players will not do well initially because there's so much nuance. But that's it's a game that you can definitely grow with. It's not unlike like Bridge or Hearts or something. You got to figure out about bidding strategies amongst your table and how you convey more information than just the piece of information you're conveying with your like, hey, this is a five. And you're like, oh, there's a green four on the table. Cool. Let me play my green five on the <laughs> table. That's the reason you told me this piece of information, right? There's a lot of pieces going on that you'll kind of generate uh, language at the table around this game. And I think that that's a really fun process. Yeah. If you have folks who have done a lot of traditional bidding card games, I think they'll get a lot of that. There's a lot of wrapping your head around what's actually happening in the game that, like Joe said, the first time you introduce this, it's going to take everybody a minute to be like, okay, cool, what can I do now? And then as they play it, it definitely leaves a taste of, well, I want to do that again because I'm pretty sure I can do better. Yeah, that's always the nice thing. I even still get that to this day when I finish a game. It's like, okay, cool. That was a disaster. I want to play again because now I have some idea of what I'm doing. So getting that emotion out, I think, is real good. So I think probably at the slightly more complex end, but still within approachable by Gateway Gamers, the recent game Horrified, this was a Target exclusive and I think just got loosed on the uh, unsuspecting world. It's probably the best of the Prospera Hall games, which is a design consortium based out of Seattle that does games. It's published by Ravensburger. This is all universal monsters. You've got seven universal monsters and a big board. And for people who are woefully ignorant and don't know, when we say the universal monsters, we're talking about classic Dracula, Wolfman, Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Mummy. 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 Yeah, uh, yeah the one with Tom Cruise, right? No. <sighs> That's an abomination. <laughs> oh, I just wanted to get her eyes I out of can't. Frank. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Now you've ruined it. But... Right, because it's Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, everyone knows those things, right? There's no surprises here. Everyone's like, oh, sure, Dracula. I know who that is. Done. But in this case, you get a B-movie team up because you get two or three of them coming at you once. The way the game works is you basically move around the board, get actions. And most of the actions involve picking up resources that will be spawned on the board from the monster's turns. Each turn you draw a monster card that spawns new resources causes one of the monsters to move or do something depending different depending on what monster it is and then possibly eat villagers basically when enough villagers are eaten or basically a threat level pops up you're done and you lose please tell me there's an Abbott and Castillo expansion plan for this no there really needs to be <laughs> so that would be that would be perfect yeah. but yeah it was interesting I got to watch a little bit of a demo of this and it's like you have sort of like a different way you have to solve each monster problem like with correct with uh, Frankenstein the bride of Frankenstein you have to sort of teach them their fundamental humanity <laughs> they always move toward each other and if they ever meet they'll just end Rampage. the game and so you have to keep them apart for a while the creature from the Black Lagoon, you have this separate board where you have to move the raft and actually find him and then play resources of specific combinations to kill him. Dracula, you have to run around and destroy his coffins, which are scattered around the board by spending, I think, entirely red tokens. They're basically red, blue, and yellow tokens for resources. And just collecting enough of them is a little tricky because when you take damage from any of the monsters, you lose tokens, which slows down the game and causes you to lose. But it's all really simple. Of course, Mysterium, which we mentioned earlier, is also a yep. great cooperative game to plug in there. Next episode was episode six, Paragraph Games. And there are certainly some relatively light ones to do in here. We've talked about Forest of Fate. There's a couple choose-your-own-adventure, but literally branded choose-your-own-adventure games. And those are fine as introductions, but overall, it's pretty 
probably not the best place to start because there's a lot of reading, which is not necessarily a problem, but you're spending more time reading and less time with gameplay. Although I do think anyone can be taught the Barbara Cartland game. and <laughs> Yes, but finding a copy is the problem. Universally beloved theming. <laughs> and honestly, if you just listen to our Valentine's Day episode, you'll know everything you need to know about that game. It's true. I think if everything. you are really dead set on introducing someone to a paragraph game, because they are intrinsically so entrenched in their theme, just figure out which theme those people want and then find a game that matches it and go through it because mechanically I don't think they're going to be a great introduction to board gaming so really approach it from a thematic side sure I mean the choose your own adventure wins are straight up targeted at the demographic who grew up with those mm-hmm. books Arabian Nights is another relatively simple game but I don't think you can learn it but you can teach that game to anyone what do you mean you Learning it from the rules. Oh, yeah, no, learning it from the rules, I wouldn't. Anyone yeah. can be taught that. You game. can administer that game for anyone. <laughs> there you go, administer. There you go. You can teach them all the things they need to care about, and then when things come up that you didn't teach them, you can just walk them through those things. Yeah, totally. Like, oh, cool, you're a monkey now. Let's talk about what that means. <laughs> you're also a married monkey. Actually, so. <laughs> not much. Not much. That's the other thing that's great about Arabian Nights is that it's a very low-pressure game because literally nothing you can do is really going to affect your chances of winning, so just go and tell a story. Episode 7 was on asymmetrical games, and as a rule... Don't do it! ...those mean you're teaching different sets of rules to different people, so that is not what we would recommend as a place to start. I think clearly, if you're going to jump in, jump in all the way to Dune. There's a new edition coming out. Yeah, no, it's out. It's, it's out. It's so, pretty. Yeah, just get Dune and go with God. And hey, we hope Dune is actually maybe there. six pages of rules. It's not that complicated a game. The rules are not that complicated. <laughs> Man, the rules of diplomacy are also not that say, complicated. However, diplomacy. <laughs> so, so obviously, don't do this. But if you're going to do it, do it with Dune. Because at the very least, then it'll be really funny. <laughs> yeah, that'll be an epic uh, disaster. And please send us an email about how that turned out. For I'm you. excited. <laughs> Moving on to episode eight, which was great gimmicks. And a lot of these are fun because, again, these are games that have cool table presence and will grab people right away. I think really Magic Maze is a perfect game for that. It's cooperative. It is real time. It is mind-numbingly stressful. Which is not the best solution for everyone. The only power you have at the start of the game is to be able to move south. That might be a typical starting situation. You're visiting shops. It's just you have to spread out those very simple tasks over four to eight people. I think that's a perfect game. Plus, it even ramps you up with like 40 or 50 different levels. Yeah, you can keep going for a long time with that. But again, that said, if there are people who are worried about doing right If everyone is waiting for you and somebody is taking that wooden pawn and tapping it on the table in front of you, it can get really stressful. So know your audience before you bring this. But actually, even that first game starts you out without the real-time aspect. You don't even use a timer. Yeah, and even though they introduce that timer fairly early, if you do have a group that is prone to be anti, like, I can't take the stress of playing this game and having people depend on me to do a thing, then... Just leave that out for a few extra games. You'll be fine. Honestly, if that's the group you have, then I would not do Magic Maze. Yeah, Yeah, I agree. I do have a game called Tantalizer from the 30s that has an interesting suggestion for how to deal with that. It suggests before you do something really stressful and dexterous, you should pop a couple Valium. (laughs) Seriously, it's in the rules. In the the 30s? That's a great accessory. I hope it came with lots of them. Did did it come with a pack? Did this get you started? No, it did not. (laughs) 
<laughs> no, because you can just pick one up at the corner drugstore. That's true. Fine. Yeah, you're not wrong. You're Tantalizer. Not. Look at the rules on the geek. They're amazing. <laughs> Another one that we thought about, and uh, this is one where you, again, have to know your audience as far as picking the theme. Cash and Guns. Or as I like to think of it, Reservoir Dogs, the board game. <laughs> it's not complicated. You're basically a bunch of thieves. You're trying to split up the loot and you're all pointing guns at each other that may or may not be loaded at any given time to try and be the person that, that winds up with the most money. But there is certainly something very visceral and fun when you have a group of friends who are all pointing foam rubber guns at each other and waiting for somebody to chicken out. It's just fun. And like we've been talking a lot about table presence and cash and guns. <laughs> Is the table presence game. You got these foam guns that you're pointing at people... Or you can use bananas. Like, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is no reason you cannot play this just pointing your fingers at people. Yes. But the foam rubber guns make all the difference in the world. They're so good. There's a relatively new edition of that that cleans up a lot of the fiddliness that was present in other editions. Yeah, I mean, it's now one page front and back of rules, really. That's all you really need for that game, and then that's great. Yeah. Next episode, episode nine, was on dungeon crawls, and that's another tricky one. So it's interesting because, like Mike has talked about before, pick the right theme, right? If your friends are really into Star Wars, you can probably get Imperial Salt to the table. You'll be the GM. You cannot explain to them all the bullshit that you're doing, right? You got a bunch of rules. Who cares? They just need to know a handful of simple rules, and that's how they kind of play their turns. And then as new things come up, you can introduce new things to them. Yeah. Hey, if they're really into dungeons where you can do descent introducing these games i think is going to be more about a curated experience than sure. other board games might be yep yeah they definitely tend to be a little bit more mechanically complex but i think it's also something that's easily manageable so one thing that i haven't actually played any of these but i've watched them being played games workshop released a set of kind of barnes and noble exclusive games Specifically, there's one called Space Marine Adventures, what? Labyrinth of the Necron. It's a my first Warhammer 40k dungeon crawl co-op game. It's really simple. They it have has been, three different themed. Yeah, they've been on a weird... They've been on a kick of targeting younger audiences. Yeah, they've, they've got, you know, children's books out now. You know, for about, for you know. Warhammer 40k. Because Whether as it turns <laughs> out, if you don't generate new fans of your work then they'll just stop buying it. And I think that's a problem that Games Workshop has had over the last decade or two, where they just kind of have not been generating a new fan base and have really been just hating their fan base that they have. I've played all of their 90 series kids games, and some of those are quite good. This new one, I haven't played, but I watched, you know, part of it. And it's like, okay, that's pretty decent. It's very basic. That said, be aware that if you start getting people into the Warhammer 40k intellectual property, you are setting them up for a lifetime of debt and despair. That's a quick question, Frank. These starter games you're talking about, do you actually have to assemble the figures or are they pre-built? Do you have to assemble them, sadly? Oh. Yeah. It's okay, a big that's something to be aware of then. But what I would say is that if it's anything like what they've done with uh, Night Vault games, yeah. they have amazing oh, press-fit yeah. yeah. miniatures. So they so they come in sprues, but they come in really pretty colored sprues. So you don't have to do any painting, which oh, is nice. Excellent. Okay, that's and they're push fit, so no gluing. Oh, perfect. No, okay, yeah, totally. that, that's that's less oh, that's a concern. And, and they're still really nice sculpts. Because say what you will about Games Workshop, they are amazing sculpts. I mean, they're still gorgeous sculpts. They're still the, they're still oh, wow. the, like the yeah. high quality yeah. Games Workshop sculpts. It's very shade spirey. Yeah, you know, Brian, this might actually be a good chance to stop and kind of talk about responsibly introducing people to board games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're not oh, the right, them to right, buy. 
40k is not responsible. Oh. The uh, how good a game is is directly proportional to how expensive it is and how long you wait for it on Kickstarter. <laughs> oh, this is like 40 bucks at Barnes and Noble. That's good. One other sort of non-standard dungeon crawl that might be worth talking about here is Catacombs. Because functionally, it's sure. a dexterity game. There's not a lot of rules to learn. There's some little individual character powers. They did in my first catacombs, like a simpler stripped catacomb. Really? Yeah, and that might actually work pretty well. It's also smaller and cheaper. Okay, that's always nice. It's like a catacombs duel or something like that. Yeah, there's catacombs conquest. Moving on to episode 10, we talked about deduction games. Now, this is one that a lot of folks who have been playing the mass market family games for a while, pretty much everybody knows Battleship. Pretty much everybody knows Clue. And those are not bad games, uh, especially the more recent versions of Clue have moved away from the roll and move. And it's still, at its core, is a pretty solid deduction game. So those are still good choices. And it's not quite as bad as Monopoly, but you can still probably find a Clue game that has been rethemed to your topic of choice. If you want to get a little more off the beaten path, a great new one that has come out pretty recently is Cryptid. Cryptid's great as an introduction game because it's got that quick setup. You pull out some cards, you set some things on a map, and you show each player their one rule, and then you just tell them, focus on that rule, then figure out what everybody else's is. So, like, the logic behind it is complicated. The mechanics behind it are simple. You are eventually having to look at what everyone else is doing and figure out of these 18 possible rules or whatever, what one each one is following. So it's not something I'd do for kids necessarily. But Yeah, but, not you necessarily know. for kids, but I mean, if you've got a group that's you're introducing to deduction games, that is certainly a quick and easy one that, again, I think it, it follows some of the cardinal rules of introducing games where you're not going to lose people during the rules explanation because it's short and the theme is present but not overwhelming. The board itself is fairly simple and simplistic and straightforward. I think it gets all of the requirements that I look for in an introduction game. And we also talked about Hanabi a little bit ago. That also falls into this category yeah, as an intro. So Suspicion, which I bought at Target. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, totally. We're not sponsored like, by Target. However, we are open to sponsorship arrangements. And mm. it was cheap, too. I oh, yeah. It's, it's only like, like 20 bucks. It's like a $20 yeah, game. Comically low. Uh, and basically, it's kind of a clue meets I spy or something. You move around the board. You are trying to both collect gems for points and figure out who the other people at the table are. It's a couple pages of rules again. You can teach it to anyone. And everyone plays. No elimination. You get some information every turn. And it's also a fairly light deduction game you're mostly just eliminating oh that person's not this or this so it's very clear-cut very straightforward yeah you get a card and it's like you do this or that and either way you'll get some yeah, pieces even of then there's not a lot of induced information you get it's pretty much oh he's not that right yep. so it's not that daunting not like deduce or die which yeah <laughs> no, then then you're going you're going hardcore yeah. One other one that we talked about in this episode is sort of on the fringes of deduction games is Love Letter, which is a very clever little introductory game. You're literally only working with two cards at a time. And the first game, which lasts about 10 minutes, you'll probably be a little confused figuring out what's going on. But after that, it just flows very nicely. I had a group of friends who I introduced to board games and like the game that they gravitated towards was Love Letter. It's a fun because they're all like... 20-something guys, right? Mm -hmm. That was the, the game that they gravitated towards. Well, clearly they needed to use the Batman. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> well, like, we played it for months, right? Like, sometimes that would be just, that would be the game that we would play because they just liked it so much. It's, it's extremely simple. It's extremely straightforward. It's super easy to teach. 
The rules are extremely concise and also specific. So like I've never encountered a situation in that game where there wasn't a rule called out specifically to cover that situation. Where it's like, oh, what happens when you discard the last person's card and they need to draw a card? Okay, well, they go take the burn card. Like there's mm -hmm. for every corner situation, there's always it's always covered by the rules, which is super awesome. Yeah. When you're teaching someone a new game, you're never going to look like, well, I guess we'll just make something up. No, it's always in the rules. It's always right there. Yeah, it's a pretty compact and self-contained rule set, but there's still a lot of interesting play in that very small deck. Episode 11 is 4X Games. Um, no. Just no. not so no. much. No. Big, long, complicated. We tried to find one that was pretty easy and introductory. And just, Doesn't I, exist. I would not go there. <laughs> so we'll just skip that one for now and move on to Hidden Teams, which is chock full of things. Werewolf is the most familiar one. It's sort of the foundation of what we think of as social deduction games today. And it's easy to get people into because you don't have to do much. One Night Ultimate Werewolf in particular. Which I prefer in all cases. Uh, first of all, because rounds are five minutes. But also there's a little more game there. It's not that much more complex. But since it's only five minutes, you can screw up two or three times before you get to an actual game uh, <laughs> as you're teaching it. And no one's going to miss it. And the game is really simple. It's very easy to teach. There's not a lot of things going on. And it has the nice thing where like you can introduce powers for players as you kind of move forward. So you can start off with there being a very small set of player powers. And you kind of introduce more and more powers and more and more twist to the game kind of as the game moves forward. Yep. And then, you know, once you've got people who are, hey, I like this kind of thing, you move on to the next step in the series, which might be something like uh, where words, for instance. Yeah, which is the other good choice. I mean, where words is basically 20 questions, except for a little bit more going on to give it a, an objective instead of just the, oh, did I win because my word was too hard? And it has werewolf theme around it. That's about it. I think another good option would be uh, Fake Artist Goes to New York. It's it's super cheap. It has a bunch of table presence, right? Because like you're not, you're, everyone's drawing a thing. Everyone, you know, different color pens. And you're just, you're trying to draw enough to make everyone know you know the thing, but not give away the thing. So there's a really fun tension there. It is exceptionally straightforward, right? Like I have literally described to you the entirety of the game. You just listen to this. I just taught everyone in the universe so how to play this game. It's basically Pictionary Cross with Spyfall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So like you're some person will not know what's going on. So there's there's a certain amount like you need to know your audience, obviously, right? If you have some people who will totally freak out if they're the person who has no idea what's going on is just try to fake it maybe this is not the game for your group. maybe this is not the genre maybe this is not group. the genre for your group you're not that's wrong. true but i think fake artist ghost new york does a great job of giving you a bit of a game without a much of an expense it's relatively cheap and it's extremely straightforward so where words is based on a game called insider by the same company oink games in fact you can walk into a barnes and noble and there's a little display rack of oink games just pick one up. You won't go wrong. They're all great gateway games. We're not sponsored by Barnes & Noble, but we are open <laughs> to partnership agreements. <laughs> they were just bought by private equity, so let's... No, uh, all right. We should probably hold off. Episode 13 was Legacy Games. Like we kind of mentioned earlier when talking about Betrayal, this is something that generally implies a, a fairly large commitment, so you have to have a pretty good idea that either people are definitely going to enjoy this or they're going to be willing to plug through it, or you have to be willing to buy a game that you may only get a couple games out of, and then you'll have a partly completed campaign that you will never play again. Now, that being said, Machikora Legacy, I think, might be the exception to the rule with this group. because I we were going to suggest Kingdom Death Monster. I mean, again, Machikora Legacy, Kingdom Death Monster, straight line. Straight line. 
Machi Cora Legacy, I'm actually introducing that to my niece and nephew right now, who are in first and second grade, respectively. And this is a cute little dice game that has simple decision matrix, and the theme is present, but not overwhelming. It's got adorable artwork that is very kid-friendly. And one thing I really like about it, going back to the whole thing with Legacy Slight spoiler here, so skip ahead at 30 seconds or so. But a lot of the decisions that you make on the cards are, do we want a PvP experience or a friendly experience? And I kind of dig that. Yeah, that's really nice, actually. In fact, the first game of Machi Koro Legacy starts off with just blue and green cards. Those nasty, vicious red and purple cards, for those of you that know Machi Koro, they're not there. Yeah, and those are the decisions. Like the we've seen now the first couple, and it's like, hey, do you either want another blue card that is very friendly and helps everybody, or do you want a red card? Now, obviously, my my nephew was <laughs> like, I want to punch people in the face, and my niece is like, but I really want the flower shop. So they both had something to cling on to there, which was really nice. Episode fourteen, pressing slash pushing your luck games. We're starting to get up into recent memory now. I actually remember recording this episode, even though I'm old and falling apart. I think we got two clear winners in this. One is Diamant, formerly known as Ink and Gold. Great introduction to get people in there. Studying groupthink, trying to figure out how much risk you're willing to take as you go in and get your treasure. Easy to play, plays up to about eight people, goes pretty quickly. I think it's a solid choice. Yeah, the rules are hyper simple. It's fun to go get gold, right? It's fun to feel like Indiana Jones. Like, oh, hey, we'll go, we'll fight a single scorpion, but not two scorpions. That is too many scorpions. You get a little minecart full of little gems. It's it's yeah. pretty. Yeah, all the components in the newest version are really nice and if you want to know how to play it all you have to do is watch an episode of afternoon dice club waiting, anime. It's waiting great. for it i was oh, like Mike's gonna work in there somewhere. Gold. yes frank i'm so glad you're on board with this <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, roller coaster ride that we're taking together <laughs> i'll put a link in the show notes about this it's a remarkable little show the other one that we think is good is uh, deep sea adventure which is another one of those great little oink games it is an oink game yes i do have a complete collection of oink games so I, i'm a, an addict how do you feel about drowning let's play deep sea adventure <laughs> yeah it's great because uh, you will have the first round in which literally everyone drowns yes. and then you start seeing them pick up the strategy <laughs> it's like just push the dead body off the pile of treasure and collect your items my other choice was can't stop for a uh, pusher luck because uh my sister was playing that at nine which was when we got it in 1980 and i still have that copy and still play it <laughs> So uh, that's a classic, classic dice pusher luck game. Episode 15 was adventure games. Because you get a lot of character advancement and a certain amount of, of crafting or inventory management, they are a little more on the complicated side. There's been a wave of lightweight, light talisman kids games, but I don't know any of them. So I can't really recommend or haven't really researched those. I mean, Talisman is pretty easy. It's also not that good a game. So I'm not sure I would use it as, as a gateway to get people on the yeah, yeah, true. I mean, it's it's fine. It's too long. It is a playable, workable game. I think it's a product of its time. Oh, sure. yeah. Well, it also has a lot of potentially frustrating aspects if you're introducing this to someone for board games in general might not be the best introduction yeah, <laughs> yeah it's got that the last time you played functionally talisman you didn't get out of yeah, the outer ring. outer ring yeah we played uh, <laughs> relic and uh yeah the entire game i never left the outer ring because i could never land a die roll that i needed yeah so there's not there's a great experience that. there's certainly that so the one i could think of in fact we played it on halloween is escape the dark castle which is 
becoming a, a stupid favorite of mine. <laughs> we have never won it. It's cooperative, kind of an adventure game. You're basically collectively going through 16 cards uh, from a larger random deck with a final boss card that will kill you. Invariably, in my experience, you have a die with a bunch of different faces on it and various symbols, only three types of symbols. And each of the cards has often choices or, oh, you take this much damage, almost like a paragraph. Yeah, I was going to say it is a little bit paragraphy. Yeah, totally. When you get into combat, you basically can choose to rest and get a hit point back or roll your die and remove any dice that the monster has that match your symbol. And you can now play. At the end of the round, the monster hits back for a fixed number of hit points. That is it. Yeah, it's hard, but it's cute. You know, aesthetically, it definitely has that sort of late 80s, early 90s games workshop back of somebody's high school <laughs> death metal notebook. Oh, totally. Artwork. There's no color in the game. It's all black and white, stark <laughs> line drawings. Which helps make it cheap. The illustrations look like the gothic game, which totally sell it for me. And that's the list of episodes we've done so far. The Halloween episode didn't really have anything uh, specific there. But there are definitely some other games of just genres and types we haven't talked about yet. I know Mike had one that he has definitely had some good luck with. I've actually introduced a lot of people who don't play board games in my social circles using Sushi Go, which is a cute little drafting card game, very similar to Seven Wonders. It's a lot simpler than Seven Wonders. And it's also got adorable little sushi art they've got these little faces on them they're just begging to be eaten don't eat the cards it's a great way to again quickly introduce a game quickly go over rules gameplay is fast and engaging and by the time you finish playing the game your players are going to be like well i think i can do even better if we play again yeah and if you get the sushi go party version you could play insane number of people it's it's a large player count so it's very simple to get a large group of people playing all together which is also something that's nice for uh, introducing people to games yep another one that i like is uh, la boca which is sort of a not quite a dexterity game it's sort of a spatial arrangement game basically you are randomly paired up with another player each round and you're each looking at one side of a little sort of 3D set of blocks. There's a card drawn for the pair of you. Your objective is to make your side of the board look like that thing while the other player is trying to do the same thing. And there's generally one particular way. Well, I need to see the red one with the blue one behind it, but you can't have that there because that makes this stick out. It's just a matter of finding a place to, to put all the blocks to make it work. It's quick playing. You can get people of widely varying skill levels. It's fun, and I just recommend it. One nice thing about Laboka is, let's say you get a table of five people every person will play with every other person twice which is nice right so like there's never like a, oh well hey i just partnered with this one person do it over and over again no the the mechanics of the game you play with every single other person two times that's and then the game is over yeah. so yeah works well one that i've had success with just people being introduced to like set collection type game splendor is a pretty easy one to teach the art's really nice people like playing with the poker chips it's a very simple concept. It's basically you spend resources to get things that give you more resources so you can buy things that cost more resources. Yeah. There's the game. And it's very simple. People can pick it up very, very easily. It's almost like my first engine building game. Yeah, in a yeah. Way. no, that's, that's a great way to look at it. That's exactly what it is. And then, you know, now that they've got the expansions, if people do enjoy the game, there's also additional gameplay elements you can introduce piecemeal as you progress. Another good example, I think, is Seven Wonders. You can teach Seven Wonders to literally anyone in the universe. <sighs> You can uh, scoring, scoring. Oh, yeah. You okay. can teach it to anyone. 
Scoring is complicated, yeah. but you can walk people through that. That one's, I think, on the higher end. It is. It's still manageable, I, especially if you do it without all of the expansions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. But, like, the base game, like, anyone can walk up. Like, we, I've experienced many times at Dragon Con. Mm-hmm. Literally, you can teach that game to any person in the universe. It's totally fine. And then you get to teach them what hate drafting is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the oh, next yeah. step. That's the next step. And certainly there are some of the classic gateway games that are still good choices. I mean, Settlers of Catan, still a good game. Oh, yeah. I think Pandemic also fits that bill. Yeah, again, a higher end of complexity for introductory stuff, but that's good. You've got Carcassonne, which I'm not especially a fan of, but a lot of people dig it. It's a a simple good one to to get in with. So if you want to strip that way down, way down, a couple of my favorites have always been Blockus. Which is extremely simple. I game. love Blockus. Is that is that still in print? Yeah, I'd probably have to go to a science book, kind of one of those yeah, educational kind of places. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm not usually a fan of abstract games, but Blockus is really nice. And again, super colorful, grabs the eye, easy to teach. Honestly, there is a game that I think is as stripped as a game can get called Tasso. It's a little trickier to find, but they just came out with a new edition called Penguin Tasso, which doesn't actually have any penguins in it. I don't know why. It's just a round wooden board. And you have a bunch of sticks of the same length, and you put a stick down on your turn. You split the sticks between players, and you just place a stick. If you place a stick on top of two other sticks that don't already have a stick, then you get to go again. And that's the game. And it's hard. (laughs) Really hard. Mostly because you're just placing without any kind of board or any... Just placing sticks. I can't believe I didn't think about this before. Over the Christmas holiday last year with my family, I decided to try and break them into more advanced board games. I started with a simple one since they're all familiar with Uno. I got Uno Attack, so you can have cards shot at your face when you hit a button. But... The one that was a big surprise and how effective and how much fun people had was Suro. Oh, yeah. Very simple. Good choice. Good call. Good call. That is a fun, simple game. Pretty. Plays quickly. Easy to understand. And still got some strategy. No, I like that. That's a good thought. Yeah, I mean, even my parents got really into it. And they started getting competitive, which I've never seen in my entire (laughs) life of them playing games together. It was hilarious. Because, like, you lay down tiles that give you a path that your little rock goes along. And they were taking tons of glee and running each other off the board. There's a lot of years of marriage there. I mean, yeah. There's some repressed issues there. (laughs) Next year, diplomacy. (laughs) Oh, God. So I think another game that is probably a really good introduction game is a game called Skull. I don't know if you Ooh, guys, yeah. I don't know if you guys have played. So uh, the way Skull works is you have five coasters in essence. They're mm-hmm. big, beautiful, like oh, that's the one with the Dia de los Muertos. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen They're this game. Gorgeous. They're gorgeous. So you go around the board. Everyone puts down one thing, and then on your turn, either you put down a card, one of your cards, or you make a bid, which is the number of flowers you can pull without pulling a skull. In your hand, you have four flowers and one skull. So if you bid, then the bid has to go on the table until everyone passes. And then if you're the winning bid, first you play all your cards. So that means you can't have put down any skulls yet. And then you pull from the tops of stacks... Oh my gosh. ...till you get to the requisite number of flowers or you fail. Mm -hmm. And the game is hyper simple and the... Table presence-wise, the game is freaking gorgeous. It looks amazing. It feels like Liar's Dice yeah. being played at a kind of Mexican south-of-the-border biker yep. bar. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're doing it with coasters, and they've got these skulls on them, and it's gorgeous. And yeah, 
And it's a better game than Liar's Dies. Yeah. Huh. It takes seconds to explain. Wow. Like Jason, I've seen that in the stores, and I'm like, the art grabbed me, but I'm like, I have oh, no, no idea what this game. game is. Okay, cool. Great game. Good to know. And yeah, uh, the other Liar's, some of the other Liar's Dice variations are good. I mean, there's Prudo Liar's Dice, but there's also Dead Man's Chest. Yeah, and it's a game that I was not expecting much out of. I don't even remember when I got it or what the context was. It's a tiny little wooden chest. It's like two inches by three inches, maybe, with a pair of dice in it and some cards that tell you what the values are. And you're just passing it around the table, rolling dice, looking at them secretly, deciding if you think you can bid higher than the last person. You know, real simple, easy to get people into. Yeah. And fun. It's a lot more entertaining than it has any right to be with the with the oh, components yeah. it comes with. I think if you're talking about, as opposed to like an introductory board game, but you're talking about like a board game that's like, hey, I want to introduce people to the next board game after like Risk or Monopoly. I think, in all honesty, Small World is still a very straightforward game that gets more complex the more roles you add, but like is extremely straightforward to describe. Yep. Hyper straightforward rules, all the complexity comes with all the different races and like for some of my family, like that's how they got introduced to some of these kind of more advanced court games. What's small world? One I would throw in and just dig up a copy on eBay and trust me. (laughs) Find a copy of Oodles, O-O-D-L-E-S by Parker Brothers. It's from the 80s. It's a trivia game. It's addictive. Just just trust me. It's basically simple one-word answers, all starting with the same letter. And it feels like a game show where everyone at the table is playing in semi-real time. And I'm amazed it has never gotten re-released because it is one of my favorite trivia kind of party games. It sounds like it has a little bit of a Facts and Five vibe going on. Well, really, it has a card that has 10 answers, all starting with the same letter. The card goes to the person who gets the last one. But one person has the bone, and that person gets one shot to answer each one. And they have like seven seconds. And they're generally on the easy side, but... Seven seconds is seven Seven seconds. With the reading of the question, you're having to just go fast. Huh. Well, the game you just mentioned, Frank, made me kind of think of of Anomia, which is another kind of party game-esque. In Anomia, you have a stack of cards in front of you, and you are flipping the cards. And they all have symbols on them for example and i really gotta gotta show people like i'll describe right they'll they might have four dots or uh, or a circle or a star or a hash mark when you flip over your card right it'll say astronaut on it and then jason will flip over his card and it will say last name when there's a pair on the table the person who is the opposite of your pair you have to say the say an example of the card that they have so let's say i had astronaut and Jason had last name, I flip over astronaut, we now have a match. I have to quickly think of a last name, and he has to quickly think of an astronaut, and whoever says it first gets the card. (laughs) Oh, but it doesn't have to be the last name of an astronaut. No, 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 it's just last name. Or so I might have edible plant, and Jason might have famous Lois. There's a ton of cards, and there's just this moments of pure stress as you flip the cards over and you're like, uh, oh, for example, I'm not good at sports, right? You might have famous basketball player. And I'm like, well, I'll say Michael Jordan. But like, <laughs> but like, I might be a famous baseball player. I'm like, ah, uh, you got me, man. I got no idea. Yeah, and of course, as soon as there's not the time pressure on you, you can think of 50 of them. Exactly. Yeah. But it's, so, it's, so it's, like it's in the, the moment. matches, so you, you have to yep. match. The, interesting. And then there's wilds, right? So wilds will cause two symbols to be the same symbol, which may cause there to become matches on the oh table. Oh my gosh. And then so you have a stack of cards in front of you because there might not be a couple matches if you pick a card up that may cause a match to become after you play a round you might play immediately play another round because now your symbol matches with someone else at the table but didn't match oh because of timing before uh. it is a 
it is a hilarious game. And I think it's it's much like many of the games we're kind of talking about here. It's it's an activity, right? More than like a hardcore game, but like you can easily pull people in. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. So do you specifically bring this game out to torture your friends that suffer from analysis paralysis? <laughs> yes. Because she's like, huh? Ah. Yeah, I'll buy this specifically just to annihilate Courtney in this game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that is our Black Friday shopping gateway games episode cluster long title thing. Hopefully you find this useful, and if nothing else, maybe it's given you some ideas on how to bring the next generation of gamers into the world. And we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episode on December 1st. And until then, happy gaming. And Target and Barnes & Noble will be waiting for your emails. Thank you. If the game is big enough to intimidate Frank, you know it's a problem.